morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Let's read. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 15 this morning. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their, the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to the message here in the book of Haggai, that we would hear the words of the prophet Haggai, knowing that it is your, your word, and that it is relevant to us today. Your word is powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it we have the promise that your word will never return void. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless your word in our minds and in our hearts. That it would stir us up to love and good works. That we would, uh, our knowledge of you would increase so that our worship of you would increase. And, Lord, we just, we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for the grace and the mercy that you pour out on us every day for the, the wonderful privilege to be here together with our church family, to worship you, to lift our voices in song, to adore you, to praise you. And Lord, I pray that as we dig into your word, Lord, that it would just be anew and afresh in our hearts and minds how worthy you are 
of worship. How worthy you are of our every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've seen some evidence here in the book of Haggai of materialism in the day of Haggai. Uh, materialism has existed since the fall of mankind. And Haggai is speaking to a people whose hearts have been captured by materialism's persuasion. Um, they're interested in temporal comforts. They're interested in uh, the lavishness of, of this temporal life. And it has persuaded them to not look and not be concerned with eternal things and eternal blessings and the eternal one. The people of Haggai are no different than us. They're no different than our culture. In our materialistic age, how easy is it for God's people to lose sight of gospel priorities and focus on personal agendas. And Haggai is challenging us by asking, are we seeking God or are we seeking our own pleasures and comfort? He's challenging the people here and he's challenging us to stop seeking those things without God present, without God being ultimate. Jesus gave this same challenge in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things, seek God and his kingdom first, and all these other things will be added unto you. But get your priorities right, Jesus says. Haggai warns us that if we seek our own kingdom first, God will withhold material blessing and his withholding is meant to gain our attention and help us refocus on what truly matters. And who can truly satisfy, which is God alone. And whenever God does such a thing, it's always an expression of God's mercy and God's grace. So, after confronting the people with their sinful mindset and behavior in verses 2 through 4, and then explaining to them that their neglect of him is why they have had less in verses 6 through 11, which you'll remember from last week was a mercy of God. Him withholding temporal blessings, temporal needs, um, blowing things away, the grain, as he states it, was a mercy from God. But within that message, um, that God sends through his prophet Haggai, there's an addi additional message that I want us to look at this morning. I want us to, want us to look at verse 7 and 8 this morning, first of all. And I want us to see something here. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified says the Lord. First, we see here that God immediately is straightforward with them about the solution. Um, I love the fact that God is straightforward with his people. His commands are clear. 
He says, basically, abandon your excuses and reorder your priorities, right? Consider your ways. And we, we talked about how considering your ways goes more than just behavior. If we want to correct the behavior, what we have to do is get to the root of the sin, which is the motive in which we behave, which means that we've replaced God with an inferior treasure. Talked about that last week. But God says this. He says, consider your ways and do this, right? Abandon your excuses for not doing what you should do and reprioritize your life. Correctly prioritize your treasures. Correctly prioritize your treasures. In other words, stop neglecting me. Stop living as if you don't need me. Stop living as if I'm not supremely and ultimately critical to life, provision, and happiness. Because we all too often do those things, those very things. We forget that God is supremely and ultimately critical to life, provision, and happiness. And, and we, like the people of Haggai's day, we need to hear that message frequently. Frequently. But within this message of, hey, look at me and hear what I'm saying Abandon your excuses, reprioritize your life. God says something remarkable to me. He tells them to stop what they're doing and start rebuilding the temple. And then God says this. He says he will take pleasure in the rebuilding of the temple and that he will be glorified. He says in verse 8, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now that pops out of the page to me. I've been waiting a couple of weeks to handle this. How in the world, we, we, we sort of raised this question in a previous message, but how in the world does rebuilding the temple glorify God? How can, how can a temporal building made of temporal substances glorify an eternal, majestic, sovereign God? who, by the way, cannot be contained by the temple. It's not going to be his dwelling place in which he lives and lays down his head because he neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's not like us in that he needs a, a shelter from the storm or from predators or from thieves and robbers. That's not what God is doing here. So why is God saying that this rebuilding of the temple will glorify him? How? How can it glorify him? How can a temporal building made of temporal substances that, by the way, he created all that goes into the building of the temple, how can that glorify the eternal, majestic, magnificent, glorious God? At the surface, this statement just seems way off mark. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring to the surface of your mind some, some passages that, that are throughout the Old Testament, but I just want to zero in on a couple for time's sake. Isaiah 111, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? This is God speaking to the people. So they've rebuilt the altar so that they could reinstitute the ceremonial sacrifices, and God wants the temple rebuilt, but we see throughout the Old Testament 
that God does not delight in their sacrifices that they bring. The, the blood that's spilt at the altar is not what delights the Lord. He says, I have, I have this is what he says, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, God says. And then in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. You, you hear what God's saying? What, what is this house that you're going to build? Here's the thing. Those things that you're going to use that you think are so magnificent, I created by speaking them into existence. The house is not where power lies. The house is not where grace and mercy flow from. It flows from God. Power flows from God. Omnipotence, omniscience, all those things flow from God. So how in the world does rebuilding the temple glorify God? I want to start answering that question. First, I want to, I want to start answering that question by going back to verse 12. How, does, how, does, how is God glorified in the rebuilding of the temple? Look at verse 12 of Haggai 1. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So this is, this is our, the beginning of us understanding how this rebuilding the temple is glorifying God. We, meet, we immediately notice a very important and proper thing. We notice this, that the people search their own heart. The people search their own heart. How do we know that? Because it says they obeyed the Lord and they feared the Lord. They obeyed the Lord and they feared the Lord. And so they fear the Lord. And so the first and best way to, to hear God speaking to you, and this is something to take note of, and I've, I've said this, I believe in the first message, a similar thing. But the first and best way to hear God speaking to you and, and the best way for me to hear God speaking to me is to rightly read what he says. It says, consider your ways. It does not say consider their ways. It says consider your ways, not consider their ways. What do I mean by that? I mean this, our natural tendency is to think of others when we hear about sinful behavior. I, I, I've been preaching for a long time, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Man, preacher, I wish so-and-so was here today. They really needed to hear that message. And I, I, in my mind, I immediately pray, Lord, let the message not pass over the person that just said that. Now, it, it may be true that somebody else needed to hear that, but let's not pass over consider your ways before we start thinking about considering their ways. 
Because if we immediately jump from hearing consider your ways and our mind immediately jumps to consider their ways, we will never search our hearts and heed the word of the Lord for ourselves. God wants us, and this is important for us to hear, God wants us to be primarily concerned about our ways over others' ways. Which is exactly why Jesus said, hey, remove the plank from your own eye before you worry about the splinter in your brother's. And what we have to recognize is that when we hear a sinful behavior, our first response is typically a defense attorney that represents us will immediately jump up within our heart and mind and immediately start defending why we behave in such a way and then accuse others for behaving the same way. So we have to hear the word of God when it says, consider your ways. Your, take that personal. Take it personal. The text says two things that I want to zero in on, and this is, this is our first, again, our first step of, of figuring the, the, the first question out. It says this, and the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. The Bible says replete throughout that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is, begin, is the beginning of the wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. It says that throughout the scriptures. And I think we would all agree that obedience to the Lord is wise. Obedience to the Lord is behaving wisely. As a matter of fact, disobeying the Lord is biblically considered foolishness. But obedience to the Lord is wise. And so the fear, the fear of the Lord always precedes obedience to the Lord. And I don't think that the that, that Haggai here is, is putting this in some kind of chronological order. I think he's remarking on two things that stood out about the people's response. They feared the Lord. And that fear stirred their hearts to obey. Now, what kind of fear is intended here? What, is, what does this word fear mean here? It's, it's not just a reverent fear. It is, it is a reverent fear, but it's more than just a reverent fear. It's not just a reverent fear. It is, in addition to reverence, what, what this is saying here is not only did they revere the Lord... But they also agreed, recognized that God's verdict about them was correct. And you know what that's called biblically? What we see here is, is them hearing the word, coming to a biblical agreement with God, and then obeying his command to abandon their excuses, and reprioritize their life. 
That's called repentance in the scriptures. So what we see here is faith and repentance in the people in the book of Haggai. They agreed with his verdict that they had neglected God and that they had lost interest in his presence. And they had been swept away by materialism. And they also agreed that he would be just in punishing them for their disobedience. That's part of repentance. Part of repentance and coming to Christ is being aware and acknowledging that God would be just in sending you to hell. In punishing you for your sin. But also, and this is critical, and this is where wisdom comes in with regards to our knowing God, they also knew in in God dealing with them and their response to God, we also see another thing. And that is that they recognize God as merciful. They recognize God as merciful. They feared the Lord and they obeyed the Lord. So rather than turning away from God, they wisely turned to Him. If we listen to the natural man, the natural man hears disobedience, and what does the natural response want to do? Flee. Hide. We see that in the Garden of Eden. We see that when criminals run. We see that when kids don't admit to what they did to their parents. We see that in us. It's a natural sinful response to just suppress or flee. And suppression is a, is a sort of fleeing. But rather than turn away from God, they wisely turned to Him. And rather than suppress truth, they wisely obeyed truth. And that is a sign that they recognize the mercy, the great mercy that lies and flows from God, that lies within and flows from God. The second thing I want us to see is their obedience. First, they feared the Lord, and which is what caused them to obey, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But they also obeyed. And I want us to see something about their obedience that's leading us to answer the question. Remember, in verse 8, God says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. I want to go back to the question, what? How, how does a building glorify God? What, what is one way by which God draws attention to his worthiness to be obeyed and worshiped? That's, that's really how we're going to answer the question. What, what about, how does a building or them rebuilding this, this temporal temple, how does that glorify God? And so let's ask this question, what is one way, one way by which God draws attention to his worthiness to be obeyed and worshipped? And we see it in this text. I'll tell you, how, here's one way that God is glorified 
and how he uses means to draw people's attention to his worthiness to be worshipped. And it's this, the obedience of his people. The obedience of his people. Whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to what? The glory, the glory of God. Everything we do, as a matter of fact, we would say the chief and the man is to fully enjoy God and glorify him forever, right? Everything we do is supposed to be with a motive of wanting to glorify God and for the grand purpose of glorifying God. So whether we work or whether we build or whether we rebuild or whether we socialize or whether we clean or whether we maintain, we are to use it all for the purpose of glorifying God. In the book of Hebrew, God says, Hebrews, God says, strive for holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Why is it important for us to strive for holiness? Well, number one, striving for holiness is an expression or a fruit that the Holy Spirit li lives within you. So there's the assurance of our salvation when we're striving for holiness. But there's also the fact that God is holy. And so here, here's, here's the thing. We always imitate what or who we love. We always imitate what or who we supremely love. We obey what and or who we love. Which is why it's so important for us to be aware of daily of inferior treasures sneaking into the place that only God deserves. Because when we allow that to take place, those inferior treasures become the things that we obey rather than God. When we are striving for holiness, we're striving to imitate the one whom we love. And therefore it glorifies God because it shows in us a supreme love for him through and by our imitation of him. And we do this, and when we do this, we express that God is the supreme treasure to seek to a world of people who are trying to suppress the truth and the loveliness of God every day. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why? Why do you say that? Because if you're keeping his commandments, if you're striving for holiness, then you're expressing a supreme love for him that you want to imitate him and obey him because we imitate and obey who or what we love. He said this, 
Jesus said this for us to conclude that obedience to God is the ultimate expression of our love for him. So not only does a heart of obedience glorify God, but the act of obedience glorifies God as well. It's not just saying you love God that glorifies God. It's acting it out. It's expressing that love. Love will always express itself in action. Always. Which is why James says, if you say you love the Lord, but there's no fruit to show that you love the Lord, then it's a dead love for the Lord. So what, what we see here, and hopefully this brings us to, to be able to make this conclusion, is that God is not so much delighting in and being glorified in a building, what, but what the building of the temple symbolizes. And that is this, that the people are finding this, that their supreme treasure is God, not temporal comforts. That their supreme treasure is not in the harvest, but the one who provides the harvest. The one who can give rain or cause drought. And so what, what we really see here is this shift in their treasure and a shift in their priorities by them abandoning their excuses and leaving what they're doing to now go work on what will symbolize to all that God is their supreme treasure. And so God is delighting in them obeying because you obey who you love and they weren't in the first verses they were not obeying God they were obeying self and so that what they were showing was that there was an ultimate love and a supreme love in their life for self rather than God and here, here's here's something that I want to say that's just an additional act of mercy and grace by God towards us. Here, here, here's, here's what it is. And this is, this is absolutely uh, the antithesis of what, God, of what the world says about obeying God. The context of our obedience to God is what actually brings us the greatest pleasure, happiness, and joy. That, that's, a, that's an additional act of mercy and grace by God towards his people. Is that he not only commands us to obey, but he has created the context of obedience to be our greatest place of happiness, joy, and pleasure. That's astounding. Now the world would say obeying God's a killjoy. You don't know what you're missing out. But God says differently and we know differently according to God's word. The temporal pleasures of the world are fleeting and they ultimately ruin you. And obedience to God brings eternal joy and eternal happiness and eternal bliss, if you will, that we not only get to enjoy in this life, but the next. 
Now, God allows our joy and experience to be heightened through glorifying Him with and through our obedience. And I'll, and I'll, I'll show you here. Let me, let me find the verse. Verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. Here's how, here's how we know from, from this passage that the greatest joy and the greatest pleasure and the greatest satisfaction and the greatest fulfillment and the greatest, all that life can give you, the greatest is through obeying the Lord. Because, because of what it says here, then Haggai, the mess, this is after it says, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. So they feared the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and then they obeyed the Lord. They reprioritized their life, and they started obeying the Lord and making him their supreme treasure again. And then God says, hey, Haggai, I see what, let's go tell him one more thing. I got to tell him one more thing now. And he says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and it says this, I am with you. Amen. Listen, it doesn't get any better in this life or the next than those words. I am with you. It's not that he wasn't present. We know that God is omnipresent. He's present all places. This is a special loving presence, reconciled presence that he has with his people. And he wants them to know, I'm with you. Because James says, if you'll remember, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we're, when we're doing things that are in disobedience to the Lord, he can bring resistance into our life in order for us to refocus and reprioritize our life. And it's a mercy and it's a grace in our life. And he does it so that we will pursue him, which is the context of our greatest happiness and our greatest joy, and then he reminds us when we're doing that, hey, I'm with you. And I'm for you. Because God's for the glory of his name. And he gives grace to those who are striving for holiness to glorify his name. And it's just an, an, another, another just act of grace that God just piles on us that not only does he give commands I mean there's lots of commands in life that aren't good for you amen there's lots of laws that that are given to obey or laws that are given for us that aren't good for us but all of God's commands are good for us and they're not only good for us in result they're good for us in the context of the situation and the context of our obedience because not only does it truly satisfy and truly give joy and pleasure and fulfillment, but when we're obeying Him, I am with you in a special way, in a reconciled way. And so, just two, two takeaways and I'll close. 
two takeaways. Here's what we like to think, and I've, I've probably said this before. I know I've said it before, and, and I'm sure you've probably said this before, but you, you know, you read through the Gospels and you're like, man, how can those Pharisees and religious leaders, how can they not hear the message of the Lord and heed it? How can they not recognize that he's the Messiah? How can they not recognize that he's the anointed of God? Look what he did. And, and there's, there's reasons for that, I think. How could, they, how could they be so blind? How could they be so prideful? But he, here's what I want to say to myself and to you. Dear Christian, how often do we hear the words of God and not heed them? How often? How often are we convicted by the word of God, maybe in a service, and then we walk away indifferent and unchanged, like the man looking in the mirror, James says, and walks away and forgets what he saw? How, how often do we return right back to our old ways? And all that we would pray for God to change us from the inside out. That he would give us ears to hear his word afresh and give us hearts to heed his word afresh. And another takeaway that I, that I want us to, to see is that the courage of God's messenger. I mean, it's easily skipped over, but the courage of, of God's messenger. He sent Haggai to a culture and to people who had been swept away by materialism. He knew what they were chasing after. He knew what they were pursuing. He knew what they were neglecting, and he had to go speak to them. He, he knew what could happen to a prophet of God when the people didn't want to hear the message. And yet, Haggai trusted the Lord. He knew he couldn't force the people to heed God's word. Haggai knew that he did not have the power to change hearts. He personally did not have the power to change hearts. But he was, however, committed to sowing the seed. And so I would ask all of us, how committed are we to sowing the seed? We live in a culture that doesn't want to hear the message. We live in a culture that has been swept, swept away by materialism. We're not so much different than the day of Haggai. But that, that our prayer would be that we can have the courage of Haggai and trust God to use us to sow the seed of the gospel. So I'm going to pray, and I, I want to ask for you to pray some things while I pray. Let's ask God for a few things. Number one, may we have at the forefront of our mind that our obedience to God glorifies Him and brings us supreme joy and happiness. That God would remind us of that truth daily. That our obedience to Him glorifies Him and brings us the greatest joy and happiness that this life can give. Secondly, may we be quick to hear and quick to obey. And thirdly, may we be willing sowers of the seed 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would keep in the forefront of our mind that obedience to you is not some cosmic killjoy that is going to take pleasure out of this life that it's a, somehow a bad investment but keep in the forefront of our minds and our hearts each day that obedience to you not only glorifies you which is the purpose of our creation but it, it brings us the greatest joy and happiness and pleasure that we can have in this life and that not only in the context of our obedience, but in the future and in eternity, there will be joy from obedience now. And help us, Lord, to have courage to sow the seed of the gospel in a culture that is hardened to it. May we see that we would be hard as well if it weren't for the regenerating work of the Spirit. And even now we can grieve the Spirit through sinfulness and neglect. Rid us of that, Lord, I pray. Help us, Lord, to be quick to hear your word and quick to obey your word. And may we have a constant reverence and awareness that outside of Christ we're worthy of hell. And may, may our, our Christian life be filled with repentance and faith in the gospel and joy in knowing that we cannot um, be ever, ever, ever be in judgment again because all that we deserved has been taken by Christ on the cross and so there is therefore now no condemnation ever for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we thank you for these wonderful truths that we get to feast upon. And we thank you, Lord, for the work that you do in our life. And we pray, Lord, for these things as a church. We pray for these things for each of us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.